How do you know it's a full day work? Full day's work. You don't, you know, we don't know what he does. <laughs> I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And for those brave right-wing Americans, if you want to fight against the country, you need an F-15. You need something a little more than a gun. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. I'm James Lilacs. Today we have John O'Sullivan on Gorby and Bill Barr on Trump. So let's have ourselves a podcast. Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 608. You can join us at ricochet.com and be part of the most stimulating conversations and community on the web. And you'll wonder why you weren't there when we started talking about it in an episode one. But it's never too late. Join Ricochet and you'll see exactly what we mean. I'm James Lonelix in Minneapolis. It's September. Ah, oh, September. Peter Robinson is in California, where September, I assume, means absolutely nothing because the weather never varies. And Rob is in New York, where September probably means galas and fall balls and all the rest of it. We'll get to that <laughs> yeah. in just a second. Instead of our usual codswallop and blatherskite that we begin these things with, we're going to go straight to our guest because it's late where he is. It's either Buddha and or Pesh. I'm not sure. Uh, John O'Sullivan, president of the Danube Institute in Budapest, the senior policy writer and speech writer for Margaret Thatcher from 1987 to 1988. With the passing of uh, the USSR's last leader, we thought uh, you could help Peter recall the man and the uh, the latter parts of that regime. John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, well, John. Tonight. May I hit you? May I hit you? Begin. Let's begin with a quotation from your former boss and our our joint heroine, Margaret yeah. Thatcher. I like Mr. Gorbachev. We can do business together. Remind us of the year and the context and tell us what it was that she had spotted in him. Well, I believe the year was 84. She'd been re-elected in 83. Um, the Brits had been trying to make use of their contact, diplomatic contacts and ministerial visits to Moscow to work out who was going to succeed. Um, well, and Brezhnev first and then Andropov and finally Chinyenko, all of whom died in relatively quick succession. And they had um, decided that one of the most likely successes, but also one of the most favorable from the standpoint of Western policy, uh, was Mikhail Gorbachev. And um, uh, so she asked um, him if he wouldn't mind, I think he was going uh, to the United States or somewhere else. And if Canada, would, as I recall. Uh, well, perhaps Canada, yeah. Would he stop off in uh, London on the way? and um, have, have a meeting with her. And that meeting was the occasion in which they had a, their first conversation. And I think even the first conversation was kind of amiably combative. You know, they um, went at each other hammer and tongs on ideological questions. And that seems 
generally to have happened. Um, and they liked that. Mrs. Thatcher liked people who argued with her. She liked the opposite of yes men. You could actually be quite an effective yes man by arguing with her uh, if you had really you know, understood um, her mentality. But right. what she did was um, put him through the normal Thatcherite cross-examination. Um, now, quite a lot of people <laughs> didn't survive that. On one occasion, um, some senior... Uh, scientific advice that was carried out um, wounded and and she turned to I think Charles Pearl and said why do people take everything I say so seriously but uh, <laughs> Gorbachev you know gave as good as he got and uh, she liked that and that it was after that that she said I like Mr. Gorbachev I think we can do business together and interestingly I don't you were I, I think Peter were you there at the time but at the first summit that uh, Gorbachev Reagan summit in Geneva I think 1986 Reagan, as I recall yeah, mm -hmm. Reagan is leaving uh, to go to the Soviet embassy for dinner and he stops by I think maybe uh, Pat Buchanan and Peggy Noonan, who are writing the drafts, and he reads it and he says, you know, I would like to go easier on him than this. Uh, he didn't say, I think he's a man we can do business with. He more or less said that. I think this is a guy we can work with. And um, and, and I think that was, first of all, uh, a percept. Uh, he, he saw for himself what she had seen. And I think that explains uh, the relationship between all three of them, and secondly, the way in which both of them continued to say fundamentally friendly things about him right to the end of their lives. John, it, the big question here, if you looked at the Wall Street Journal yesterday, you saw a long article by William Taubman, an American academic who's written a biography of Gorbachev. And Taubman presents what has become the canonical liberal view, which is that Gorbachev did it all on his own. If John Paul II had never visited Poland, if Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher had never been born, Gorbachev would still have wrapped up, attempted to reform communism, and wrapped it all up just as he did. And then if you looked at the, the rando, the, the editorial, which I'm sure was written, or at least overseen by our friend Paul Gigot, it presented the other point of view, which is containment worked. Uh, Gorbachev turned to reform once Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan proved to him that the old game was over, that he could not defeat the West in any kind of arms race. They backed him into a corner, and at that point, he became a reformer. Who's right? Well, obviously, I did. I mean, I haven't read Mr. Taubman's piece, uh, and I don't really think I need to because I've heard that case put many times in the past, particularly during uh, the period in which the West was swept with Gorbimania. I, my own view is that there is, of course, a strong case for Gorbachev, and I'm happy to make uh, the parts of it I think accurate. But the fact is that he was the necessary excuse for the liberal left and for the academic Sovietologists too. The excuse they needed to um, it, it glide over their errors and failures, failed predictions of the previous 20 or 30 years. If you look at a great deal of the Sovietology, of, of the higher journalism in the West, they are constantly uh, 
treating the Soviet Union as a power as important as the United States, which we now know was nonsense. Uh, when yeah, Reagan true. makes his speech in Westminster, that they are completely puzzled. I mean, we're not at war with the Soviet Union. Why is Reagan saying these things, um, which strike them as unbelievably bellicose and insulting? Well, he was telling the truth. And of course, the people who heard it in the Politburo knew he was telling the truth. It was Western liberalism in those years, which simply failed to act to to face up to the reality um, of that of that period, and so yes, I would be on Paul Gigo's side in the, in that particular battle. Um, but I think we have to say this. Um, I, I do take the view. I put it in my book actually that um, Gorbachev is a response to Reagan and Thatcher. He's a response yes. in a sense to containment, but containment lasted under different permutations, really, from 46, 47 onwards. So you have to say it didn't happen in the, um, under Kennedy. It didn't happen under Johnson. Right. It didn't happen under Nixon. Although Nixon and Kissinger, in my view, took a giant step towards bringing it about um, by uh, detaching China from Soviet Russia and bringing it in for, into a kind of uh, Western-friendly neutrality almost. So, so that was important. But now Reagan and Thatcher had, in effect, competed the Soviet Union to its early grave. And that's something that was recognized um, by, by the, in a sense, the more realistic and sensible people in the Politburo. I mean, when I was trying to write my book, I came across all kinds of interesting internal discussions and letters and diaries, uh, most of which are now very easily available, uh, of senior Politburo officials, people around uh, Andropov and Gorbachev and so on, and they are all pessimistic. And uh, uh, they, they're looking at Poland and they think this is going to be what happens to the Soviet Union in 10 years. And almost exactly 10 years later, right. the Polish collapse is echoed by the Soviet collapse in the Soviet collapse. Um, so, yes, this was the ex the Gorbachev is the excuse of Western liberalism for overestimating the importance uh, of the Soviet Union and for underestimating the contributions of Reagan and Thatcher. John, my, here's my, my final question. Well, of course, you and I could talk about this for a couple of hours, but my final question right now is this, and I'm giving you my thought and asking, simply asking my old friend John O'Sullivan whether he agrees, I suppose. By the way, you said very diffidently as I was trying to write my book, you did write your book. It is called <laughs> The President, the Pope, and the Prime Minister, and it is magnificent and delightful as well. Just a wonderful read. The President, the Pope, and the Prime Minister by John O'Sullivan. Here's the question. Even we conservatives, even old cold warriors such as John O'Sullivan and Peter Robinson, have to give this much to Mikhail Gorbachev. In 1956, in the city from in which you sit right now in Budapest, the Red Army rolled in and killed hundreds of people suppressing the Hungarian Revolution. In 1968, the Soviets rolled the tanks through the streets of Prague to put down Alexander Dubček and the Prague Spring. And in 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev kept the Red Army in its barracks and permitted one communist regime after another to fall and to fall peacefully. Now, 
we we have to give him that much, don't we? We have to give him that much, and it's a considerable amount. Let me make just a quibble point, a couple of points. Um, you know, it was under Andropov, really, that the um, they, the Soviets lost the Cold War, because w- when the missiles were installed in Western Europe by the United States to counter the SS twenties, uh, yeah, th- that. Which the Soviets had and the peace movement had done the very best to prevent happening. That was the end of the military conflict of the Cold War. Um, what Gorbachev did was he came in, he saw two things realistically. One, we've lost that. We now have to try to get the best kind of negotiated peace we can. Even then, he couldn't really do that. And in it, when he came to Washington and New York um, after Reykjavik, he essentially surrendered all the points of, of um, Soviet resistance uh, um, of the Cold War. Now, that was one thing he did. The other big thing he did, of course, was to try to resolve peacefully the terrible disaster that the Soviet Union had become. And uh, he was over-optimistic. He got it wrong. The Pope, I think, John Paul II, said it best. He said, Mr. Gorbachev is a good man, but communism is unreformable. And when yes. you try to reform it, it collapses. He accepted the consequences of that rather than kill a lot of people. Now, he did, by the way, and this is where you get a different reaction in this part of the world to him. He did, of course, kill people in Lithuania, or rather the Soviet forces did, and in Baku. And um, he also put troops into the streets in Moscow when there was a, a huge demonstration. And his attitude to the coup, well, it failed and he lost power, so we'll never really know. But I don't think that matters in the historical context. What we do know is that he didn't send people in the thousands, in the, it didn't send the army to murder people in their thousands and hundreds of thousands, and he did try to reach, a, and he made significant sacrifices to reach an accommodation with the West. And in his later years, it seemed to me, I don't think he became a Christian, as some have suggested. I think what he became was a a man who genuinely thought that peace was much better than any alternative, and he was willing to try to preserve it. I think he became a good man, really. John, we can have you, and and a great Pizza Hut spokesman too. Uh, John, you know, at, at the time, a lot of us were wondering how a system, a totalitarian system, could elevate a man who would preside over its destruction. How a system that would produce such a turnip like Chernenko would then turn around and give us somebody who was voluble and a little bit more Western-facing like Gorbachev. When you mentioned before that he was chosen because they thought that he would be a good face for the West, you know, they tried that with Andropov, where they said he likes jazz and he likes uh, you know uh, Glenn Miller and, and whiskey, so. You know, he's really okay. Yeah. That didn't work. Was it because they thought that he would be good at at uh, cosseting and convincing us, or that uh, they didn't really know that he believed what he believed in the end? In other, in other words, did they think he was just going to be a good PR agent and act at the same as all the other Soviet leaders? That would seem to be what they would think. No, I don't think they thought that. In fact, um, when he was proposed for the senior position by Gromyko, who'd been 
the stone face of Soviet <laughs> right. Iron pants. Yeah. Uh, Gromyko said um, he has a nice smile, but he has sharp teeth. And I think that was the genuine view. He, after all, had fought his way to the top of the Soviet Union as a young man. That wasn't easy, I'm pretty sure. Um, everybody had sharp elbows, if not sharp teeth, uh, he was competing with. So he got there, and th- they re- th- their view of him was he was competent. He might turn the system around. Um, remember the later stages of Brezhnevism. People were coming to Brezhnev and giving him one depressing story after another. And the old man said, surely it can't be as bad as this. But right. they'd come to realize it was as bad as that. And so when they did, they turned to someone who they thought might do something about it. He tried. I mean, the first things he did. And remember, if you read the reports of the commentaries, rather, by Vladimir Bukowski in 84, 5, 6, and 7, Bukowski is saying that the Western reaction to uh, Andropov and Gorbachev later is, is, is irritates him because he said, I don't want to turn on my vacuum cleaner in case it starts babbling about the virtues of the new Soviet leader. You just had that sense that um, the Western opinion was desperately keen um, for the Soviets to produce a titanic figure. Well, he wasn't a titanic figure, but and they tried to turn him into one. But the fact was, his attempt failed. When he then had to deal with the failure of his the reforms, he dealt with them not in an effective way always, but in a civilized way, and broadly speaking. Um, and then finally, um, he actually, in his diplomacy with the West, he accepted reality which was something that is very praiseworthy, even if it's, it, it should be more common. Well, he may be a Titanic figure in the nautical sense and that he met the, the iceberg of Ronald Reagan in the dark of the night, but we're happy the way it turned out. John, we could talk to you for about 19 more hours about this, but we have to go and you have to sleep. So regards and thank you so much. We hope to have you on as soon as possible. James, thank you. Um, <laughs> Rob, Peter, yeah. good to talk to you. As give always, our, give our very best. Give our best to Mrs. O'Sullivan, please. She's just come in. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks again. Take care, John. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You know, I'm talking about presidents of your and missing Ronald Reagan, as we all do for a variety of reasons. You just wonder, though, if Ronald Reagan had been uh, coming along at a later age, post-Soviet Union, what he would have uh, been like, what would have animated and motivated him. And you wonder also whether or not he would have slept on those sheets that the other presidents love so well. Unbelievable. You know, uh, people like Peter with their recollections of Ronald Reagan, those anecdotes get better over time. Just like Bolin Branch sheets, right? Now, anything you can think of that gets better over time as you use it, well, you know, maybe a great leather jacket or a cast iron skillet you take care of, solid wood furniture. But would you ever think that sheets could be on the list of things that improve the time? No, because they wear out, they snag, they get ugly, you, you know, like Bolin Branch. Oh, no, no, no. Bolin Branch sheets are a whole different level. They're not just buttery, breathable, and possibly comfortable. No, they get softer with every wash. Uh, but you say, hmm, what's the thread count? Of those? You know, forget thread count. Bolden Branch gives you thread 
quality. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible, right? So I know this, and I can say this, that my sheets are better this week than they were last and the week before and the week before. Now, we're not talking, you know, some great big change like, wow, these sheets were like butter before. Now it's it's like that Irish butter that costs a lot at the store. No, but incrementally over time, they've just gotten better and better and better. And I trust them to do so every week. I've got the signature Hamda sheets. They're from Bolin Branch, and they're a bestseller for a reason. You will immediately feel the difference. From there, the sheets get softer and softer with every wash. Wow, they're made with threads so luxurious. They're beloved by, yes, three U.S. presidents. And if the presidents can't convince you, well, check out there are more than 10,000 stellar reviews. Plus, Bolin Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all your orders. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code RICOCHET at BolandBranch.com. That's Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. Promo code RICOCHET. And we thank Bolin Branch for sponsoring this the Ricochet podcast. And now we welcome back to the podcast, Bill Barr. Yes, William Barr served as the 77th and 85th United States Attorney General in the administrations of President George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump. Today, he is a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute, and you can read all about those easy years in Washington in the lovingly titled memoir, One Damn Thing After Another. He's back with us again after the publication <laughs> of the book to talk about his successor and the raid at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Mr. Barr, thank you so much. Look, we all saw the photograph. We all saw documents strewn on the floor. Guilty. Frog marked to prison, prison just, just, just from that picture, Right. Uh, no, but, you know, I do think the government's filing does raise troublesome questions for, uh, for the president, for President Trump. I look, I've said all along that I think people are out in front of their skis. A lot of the people have been commenting on this, either about the reasonableness of the search under the circumstances or whether there's a potential crime here or whether if there is technically a crime, whether it would be prudent to actually pursue the president. And there, there are two central uh, facts that we have to know much more about uh, in order to sensibly address any of those questions. One is, uh, what, what were the documents that the uh, government was concerned were there and how sensitive were they and how sensitive were they in fact? And second, uh, the second question is, um, whether there was active deceit by the people at Mar-a-Lago and how raw, if any, uh, if there was any deceit, how raw was it? Was there misleading of the government? Was there obstruction? And I think the government knows the answers to both those questions and everyone out there, all these commentators are talking about it. But we really have to know about that before we can judge any of those issues. And I think that the government's filing makes the government's action look more reasonable. And and if, in fact, there's highly sensitive information, uh, diverse information there that was sort of strewn around these boxes without rhyme or reason, uh, and if, in fact, the government was affirmatively misled and they can tie the president to that, then, you know, it's serious business. Uh, and I think it would be a hard decision for the department as to whether to proceed with it. So... You, you Attorney General Barr, I'm going to call you that once, and after that, I'm going to find it hard not to call you Bill. Call me Bill. All right. So you've just, you mentioned three hurdles. One is whether the search was reasonable. Second is the likelihood of a crime. And the third is the wisdom of indicting and prosecuting. Correct. So 
in your judgment, the first hurdle is done. From Based on what you've seen, the government had reasonable grounds, probable cause. The magistrate was correct in permitting them to go ahead and search. He was correct in issuing the warrant. All that, n- none of that at this point raises eyebrows for you. No, no. I think the, the issue of the search, when I say reasonable, I don't mean legally reasonable. Obviously, it, it passed legal muster. They had probable yes. cause, persuaded the judge they had probable cause. It was a lawful search as far as i can tell the question is under the circumstances it being a former president uh and involving uh you know questions of of classification and 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 all the the sub issues that could arise there was it prudent for them to do a search right off the bat now the initial commentary right out of the box was oh they should have served a subpoena well right. it turns out they did serve a subpoena and the subpoena appears to have been flatted uh, and, uh, so that, that casts the government's action in somewhat different light. And, uh, I think, you know, as I look at what the government said, there were longstanding efforts to try to jawbone, uh, Mar-a-Lago to, to give these, uh, classified gov- uh, documents back. And, uh, they were, uh, you know, the, the president trump apparently played games how much he was directly involved in that remains to be seen but there was a lot of gamesmanship going on and jerking the government around imagine that we'll come to that in a moment one yeah. more one more before we get to to the former president himself andy mccarthy was on this podcast just a couple of days after the search and andy's view at the time was that Although no doubt legally permissible, this search was pre- was uh, was a pretext. What they were looking for, what they were hoping to find, was doc was evidence related to January sixth. Does that strike you as plausible anymore, or does it now look now that we have this heavily redacted, but we still have bits of the affidavit that we can see through almost through as if looking at it through a, a construction site fence? But does it seem to you that actually? They were looking for documents. They were concerned with classified documents. I think, you know, that's always conceivable, but I think the more we know, you know, the less likely that is. That they were were looking for something else or hoping to find something else. Maybe hoping to find someone else. and, And of course, you know, that goes to whether it was prudent to launch this search. But when you actually look at the machinations that were involved and the fact that they waited a year, uh, and when they got the documents, they looked through them, waited several more months, uh, got more that indicated that uh, there hadn't been a thorough search, and then got apparently significant inside information. The way I read the government's filing, I, I believe they have a number of sources inside Mar-a-Lago that have provided information. And if I were sitting on the sideline and wasn't aware of what that information was, I would hesitate to be too critical right now and get out on a limb because... You know, I think it was a hard decision to make to to authorize this search. And my guess is it wasn't made unless they feel they have fairly strong evidence. Got it. It just sounds strange to hear the phrase, you know, the government has sources inside the president's house. <laughs> not sources meaning not planted <laughs> agents in place, but when you have a grand jury, when you have a grand jury, which they had, okay, investigating this, and you subpoena someone or ask someone to come in and talk to you about uh, a potential crime, uh, you know, yeah. most people would go in and tell the truth. 
And now what, what, what's tragic about all of this, of course, is that it's all a gratuitous episode uh, that is that has caused great that will cause great damage uh, to the Republican Party in the midterm elections and benefits Biden because it diverts attention from all his failures. And it's a self-inflicted wound. So sorry, w- w- one more, if I may, before uh, James and Rob come in. This is we're back to the question. It's in your book again and again and again, one damn thing after another, your bestseller. It was in the conversation you and I had on Uncommon Knowledge. What is Donald Trump thinking? What what motive could he have had for scooping up classified documents, taking them to Mar-a-Lago, Largo, Lago, Lago, however it's pronounced, and then playing games with the government when they asked for when they asked for apparently straightforward information about just what he had taken, what he intended to do with it, and where it was all stored. Why would you, what, 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 what motive can you construct that makes sense of this behavior? Well, as I said, I, I am withholding, you know, final judgment on this stuff until I have more facts, but I have been concerned since the inception of this, that this was another example of sort of a harebrained activity uh, by a willful president who doesn't have people around him or willing to give him good advice. And, you know, it's not the first time he's done harebrained things that get him into trouble in which then Republicans are forced to sort of or feel f- compelled to go forward and try to justify going back to the Ukraine matter and January 6th. And and what I said is after the election, you know, he wasn't willing to take advice from anyone. I believe that people in Mar-a-Lago were advising him to to just give back all the documents and stop this nonsense. And for whatever reason, he didn't want to do it. I don't, I, I am very interested in seeing the distribution of these classified documents. Look, if they're, if they're all relating to, to Russiagate, which I shout, uh, then it puts it in a pers- in more perspective. You know, he may feel he had a reason to keep it, but I suspect they're, they're disparate, documents. They're things that just happened to find their way up into his residence, which means they could have been very important and related to some important decisions he was making. And I think they could run the gamut of class what classified information classified information could entail, including sensitive sources and and you know potential consideration of military options under certain circumstances and so forth. And I think if 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 they prove to be a wide variety of classified information uh that was picked up you know scooped up willy-nilly and taken down there i think it puts things in a very bad light for the president uh hey uh thank you for joining us you 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 said um that this reminds you of those days in the white house when he wasn't listening to anybody and he wasn't taking any advice mm-hmm. but in fact he was he just was getting advice from some <laughs> pretty bad people right, right. so and I, this is maybe unfair for you to, to comment on but how bad is his legal team they seem to be making two weeks of elementary mistakes. Well, I don't know. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to sort of make a I comment. Know, it was unfair, but I was kind of hoping you would, you know, let loose. But uh, I didn't think the argument for a special master was persuasive. But whether it was persuasive or not, it came. Uh, it came two weeks too late. So, and yeah. do you think that there was that he had legal counsel telling him for the past twenty months, just give it back? Not necessarily legal counsel. I think there were people down there that were telling him that. Um, I spoke to somebody this weekend who who knows him quite well. I mean, or sort of before his uh, uh, his presidency, but work with him is in real estate here in New York. 
And he said, look, I'll tell you what's in those papers. I'll tell you what the classified information is. It's stuff that makes him look bad. It's stuff that casts a doubt on decisions he made. That's how he, that's what he does when something makes him look bad. He hides it in a basement somewhere. Um, does that make sense to you? Because that, that's the mystery, the heart of all this is like, what possible value do these papers have to a person who is no longer president and certainly isn't going to be president for even in his own mind for another three years, four years? And even then, we'll be able to get those papers again when he's president again. There's no, no reason to continue having a personal library of selected classified documents. What, what other reason would there be? Well, there's another scenario. And again, you know, I hate speculating about this because we're going to find out soon enough, I hope. But uh, I question whether there was a deliberate decision of picking and choosing and vetting what information was taken. I think things were sort of scooped up and put in boxes and just taken wholesale in an undiscriminating way down there. And I'm not sure he really was aware of every document uh, and uh, which is one reason I think the idea that he declassified it is strange, is strained. But um, but then when the government wanted it, I think then then it brought the ego into play and the idea uh, that hey, I am the president, I am really the lawful, the the, the valid president here. And he basically oh, wanted to keep the documents because the <laughs> okay. government wanted the documents. Yeah. Right. Now, just get it like a dog. Now, now that you want it, I want it. Right. Um, how much? Oh, uh, the other question I have is sort of a larger one. How much trouble is he in? Is it is it moral? I mean, we have now locations of trouble. We have Southern District, New York trouble. We have Mar-a-Lago trouble and we have Georgia trouble. Which one? Which one of those areas do you think gets really good? At, should should be, be the one that makes him nervous? Well, I can't I can't speak to what the DAs are going to do because, you know, there's they, they can sort of do what they want, even if it's not particularly justified. I'm not as concerned for the president about Georgia or New York. I think the most hazardous one in terms of the pieces falling into place uh, that support a you know, that support uh, a, cr- a criminal indictment would be. um Mar-a-Lago, but it's also one that they need the right, the government would need the right set of facts to bring it and explain why it's an appropriate thing to do against the former president. I think the January 6th is a serious one because the subject matter is quite serious and, and people understand that. But I think the chances of making a case against him are, are not high. Yeah, what am I not getting about January six? I mean, I, I, I don't see what the I don't see what the crime was. What Andy McCarthy was telling us a couple of weeks ago. What was it? The, the uh, defrauding the United States, which used to be you know financial, but then became any sort of thing is that, that is defrauded. that would that be the crime? I mean, I, it seems kind of a confusing. I'm not sure I know what the crime is in January six. I know what the I want the blunder is. I know what the the mistake. I think I there's sort of two. There's sort of two axes of of uh, attack. Sort of one of them would be that um, there was a plan to delay the count, to use violence to delay the count, and delaying the count was essential for them to put it off for to, to lobby the states to then do the next thing and the next thing. So the first step in the plan was 
delaying the count. And therefore, if they can tie the president and say the president knew there would be violence up there, that was the plan. And he essentially uh, precipitated it by telling those people to go up to the hill. That's number one. Number two is that the whole the whole idea of of um, creating alternative panels and claiming that right. uh, he had won the election that that he knew better he understood that was was fraudulent uh, that was a that was a false claim and this whole thing was was hmm. uh you know knowingly uh uh you know misrepresentations and so forth as part of the a fraudulent scheme those so, are the sort of two so as a, as do you think he as a, as a, as a citizen who now I got a lot going on. I can only focus on one or two of these things. Can I stop reading about Georgia, or do I have to kind of keep all these pots on a simmer in my brain? I'm just looking for a little more efficiency because it seems like there's new uh, there's new avenues of prosecution investigation opening up every couple of weeks. Yeah, I you know I something like Georgia, you know, if the, if the DA goes forward with that, I mean, I think that's entirely possible uh, because they may persuade themselves they have a good case. I just don't think, based on what I've seen, they have a good case. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, I think it would essentially play into Trump's hands and, and be bad because uh, uh, it would make him a martyr and actually end right. up strengthening him. So my view is it would not be in the public's interest to bring uh you know honky tonk cases against them if right. you're going to bring a case it would be a good case but all right, speaking of good cases um hillary's walking around loose um a whole lot of people uh who voted for trump started shouting lock her up lock her up lock her up and she didn't get locked up and it seems i'm clarified this because i'm sure i'm wrong it seems like she kind of did the same thing or or are there specific differences in the way she handled classified material as Secretary of State and the way he handled classified material as President of the United States? Well, I, I you know, because let me just say that she was Secretary of State. She left in 2000, February 2013, six years before I arrived. You know, the statute right. of limitations is five years. Oh, sure. So no, I wasn't saying as an attorney general, you should have locked her up. But you know what I, you know what I mean? Like the Hillary standard seems much, much more, much looser than the, the Trump standard. Uh, I, I was going to get to the stand. I was going to get to the standard, but just say that. And the decision that you know to clear her was initially made by the by the you know Obama administration Justice Department. But put that aside. Um, again, they're the same two questions in that case, which is one was a crime there, and two under the circumstances would it have been prudent to pursue it mm-hmm. and uh you know as i mentioned you know the president said to me uh, before he hired me that uh he actually felt it was it would be a bad idea to prosecute hillary clinton that it would make us look like a banana republic and so forth and so on and those are legitimate prudential reasons not to pursue it i think there's a double standard which is what you're getting at yeah. in the department of justice and I think that the people who were pursuing that, when, when my experience is, A, that the uh, there are a lot of people in the department that are hankering for a chance to go for a Republican scalp, but when a Democratic uh, politician is under the gun, they're very lethargic about it and hand-wringing about it and, mm-hmm. and uh, figure out ways to sidetrack it. That's as a general rule. They're not as aggressive. And... Um, that be, and and so I think that was in play, but uh, I also think there are distinctions uh, 
But a lot of that depends on how sensitive the stuff is that the president had. I'm aware of the sensitivity of the stuff that's believed to have been in Hillary's things. And I'd be interested in seeing how that compares to what the President Trump had. And the other thing is she had good lawyers, really good lawyers. And <laughs> uh, I think the issue somewhat uh, less on the other side. <laughs> yeah. And so there would have been there were a lot of obstacles and hurdles to successfully any to any prosecution, even if we decided to to go forward. Bill, Peter Robinson here again. Shifting from Donald Trump a little bit to the people who still support him, the 74 million who voted for him, you've said repeatedly that for all your, your charges against Trump concerning January 6th, for the way he ran his administration, well, you've said that his policies were fundamentally sound and there were a lot of talented people in the administration, but you've also said, and this is my point here, that he was, he was more sinned against than sinning. And since he sinned a lot himself, that's saying something. But here we have, I'm just trying to put myself in the position of, I've, I, this past summer I spent some time in Wyoming and Idaho and there's still a lot of Trump signs out in front of ranch houses in Wyoming and Idaho. And you know what? Those people have a point. The FBI, we now know, engaged, well, we have one FBI agent who's pled guilty to fixing a document to try to get Trump. I'm just off the top of my head. We, Mark Zuckerberg was on the Joe Rogan show the other day, and he said that Facebook algorithmically deleted any mention of the Hunter Biden laptop on all its properties in the run-up to the election at the request of the FBI. We have 50 former intelligence officials who have signed, who signed that letter saying that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. Of course, that's not true. Even the New York Times has admitted it was genuine. Has one of them apologized? Zero. Not one. On and on we could go. So, it just seems to me that if you're Mitch McConnell, or you're Ron DeSantis, or you're Tom Cotton, or Nikki Hale, you're a responsible Republican who says to himself or herself, there's a huge amount at stake here. How do we handle Donald Trump. He himself is impossible, but he has an argument, or rather, the millions of people who still support him are angry for good reason. Anger, anger as a political anger, matter. How, how? Anger is not a strategy for making Okay, fair. So, what is the strategy? Advise now, Ron DeSantis, advise Mitch McConnell. But, Peter, Peter. Yeah. Yes, he was more sinned against than sinning. I've said that. And people should should be mad as hell and frustrated as hell about how he was treated in office. Although after he lost the election, I think he lost the moral high ground. But um, 
And then you started talking about the meat and, th and then you talked about how the FBI was involved. Yes, the FBI has done some bad things, things that have hurt the uh, the institution and things which are make people not give them the benefit of the doubt. That's part of the damage. But I'm pretty familiar with the problems in the FBI and a lot of agents who were there today and, and former agents believe there are problems and that should be reformed. But trying to squeeze everything, but for our side to squeeze everything that's done into that narrative, that it's an out of control bureau and the bureau is corrupt. Right bottom is is goes too far in my opinion the other right. side the other side squeezes obliterates truth and uses narrative we can't do the same thing we have to uphold the truth and the fact is whether this was a reasonable search or not it wasn't the fbi's decision to make the search in a case like this this was a DOJ decision made by the uh, attorney general. I'm sure all the prosecutors were on board on this thing. And the FBI was acting as agents. So why we focused our ire on the FBI who are executing a warrant, I think, goes too far. That's number one. Uh, number two uh, is the fact that Trump was unfairly treated, although he brought a lot of problems on himself, doesn't mean he should get a pass or that the Republicans should feel right. obliged to man ramparts every time he does something stupid and, and something that's destructive and something that hurts the Republican Party. We shouldn't necessarily man the ramparts for him and defend that. It doesn't mean that he's entitled to ignore, you know, to, to ignore the law and do his own thing. And so uh, I think the the third thing is, you know, I feel like the the democrats are skillfully provoking uh the republicans and the right into a into a foolhardy attack uh or into a, uh, or nominating uh our weakest candidate and ultimately going down to defeat and uh i think it takes cool blood and you know some strategic sense of how to win the election uh for the next election uh, to turn this thing around. And, and, you know, every time, every time we, we go to this sort of blind rage, uh, without thinking things through and, and being strategic about picking our candidates and, and so forth, we end up losing ground. And Trump is proving himself to be very at defeating Republicans, but not so much at defeating Democrats. Whom do you admire? Here, let me, let me two, two people. How do you answer the charge that Mitch McConnell has been too hard on Trump. And how do you answer the charge or how do you respond to the charge? It's not your job to answer it, but what do you make of the charge that Ron DeSantis hasn't been hard enough? There are plenty of Trump people and Trump is now taken to attacking Elaine Chow, who is Mrs. Mitch McConnell. The, the, I mean, he's, he's aside from Trump, the notion that Mitch McConnell is too old, too cautious. He was much too rough on Trump in the speech that he gave in the chamber of the Senate after January 6th. He's, we can't win with this guy. And then the other argument that Ron DeSantis should be putting space between himself and Trump right now. Uh, what do I make of that? Yeah, what do you make of it? Well, I, Here, I I'm, I'm, that... not, I'm asking you now, not as a former attorney general, but as somebody who's been around Washington and Republican politics since you were a kid. You started in the Reagan administration, same time I did. You've seen a lot. What do you make of this? I, th I think that uh, I, 
wrangling between our members on the Hill and the, and the president is is not something new, although we usually keep it quiet and don't and don't uh, wash our dirty linen in public. And it weakens us when we do. But I think Mitch McConnell is a is a is an excellent uh legislator and uh, statesman who uh, is responsible for the biggest achievements of the Trump administration is his his uh, working of the Senate and especially on judicial uh, nominations and especially saving uh, Scalia's seat that all that was all Mitch McConnell and uh, I'll give you an example of how crazy this is you know the uh, when when tr- when Biden was trying to get his uh, build America back through and he couldn't get enough Democratic votes, what did our uh, you know w- what did Trump and, and some of his followers do? They wanted to shut down the government. They wanted not to extend the debt limit. Now, what would that have done? That would have bailed out the Democrats who weren't able to pass their own damn bill because they couldn't get Democratic votes on it. And we would have come in as Deus Ex Machina, shut down the government, and and then had the whole debate shift to our, uh, uh, you know, our actions and shutting down the government. So what did Mitch do? Mitch said, okay, we're going to give you a couple of months. He extended it for a couple of months. He let, he got out of the way and let the other side hang themselves where, whereas Trump's, you know, let's punch him in the nose and go right at it, you know, would have completely uh, 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 seized defeat from the jaws of victory. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Now I'm very sympathetic to the uh, Tea Party movement uh, and but they did get into the point where they basically uh, had us lose about five or six Senate seats. And, you know, that has been very painful for us. And we're experiencing that now. So uh, I, I just hope the same thing doesn't happen with the Senate races now, because some of the some of the candidates, you know, are not doing as well as people thought they would. So I, I, I want DeSantis. I think DeSantis is a very able politician far more able than Trump as a politician, understanding the whole battlefield and looking at the whole battlefield in an integral way, whereas Trump just, you know, fights the fight of today, regardless of the costs and benefits uh, to the whole battle. And uh, I think any successor to Trump, I want a successor to Trump who is a fighter like Trump. Okay, I'm not looking for a namby-pamby, what they would call a country club Republican who wants to get along. I'm looking for someone who fights, but someone who fights smart and wins. And uh, and I think that DeSantis and therefore I think any successor to Trump has to be someone who is pro-Trump in terms of policies and so forth. And I think DeSantis is. I think DeSantis is a is an able uh, would be an able successor to Trump. I think a number of the other people would, too. Uh, but I don't blame them for not distancing themselves from Trump at this point, because I think, you know, that would hurt their chances. If Trump, the, la, last question from me, because I can t- I, I know Rob and James and I can tell they're champing to get in here. Fair enough. If Trump runs again, should DeSantis sit this one out? Should Tom Cotton, should they just let him have it on the theory that there's no upside either? Either he defeats them in the primary battle and wins the nomination and in that case they've lost or they defeat him in the primary battle but they, then he does everything that he can to undermine them in the general 
There's no upside for a Republican challenger. Or do you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is politics. Let the, the, some, the next generation has to take this guy on. We just have to have a, we have to fight this out. Well, I, I think if, if we're in, if we're in the position of saying we in probably what will be one of the pivotal elections in our history that we're going to put up a suboptimal candidate because we're afraid he's blackmailing us and will sabotage anyone else we put up, uh, then we don't deserve to move forward as a party. And I don't think if anyone uh, does not run because of that, then they're not suited to be president of the United States, in my opinion. Now, I think DeSantis will have to make his own decision based on personal factors, including things about his family and so forth and so on. And and, and my advice to him would be, you know, uh, don't not run uh, because you're afraid of Trump or Trump beating you up. Uh, and and also remember that it's you have to sort of seize the opportunities that are there. I think there is a lot of support in the Republican Party for an alternative uh, to Trump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He doesn't strike me as somebody who's particularly afraid of him. And if he is, right. it would be a surprise. And if he is and doesn't run, well, then we dodged a bullet on that one. Who knows? We'll see. But well, we hope to have you back again as soon as possible to discuss this one damn thing after the other. The latest book by Bill Barr. Thank you for joining us again today on the Thank podcast. You, Always a pleasure. Right. Thanks, sir. Listen, if you're looking for somebody to help with the laptop next time, just give me a call. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I will. Good, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> okay, take care. The thing is, Peter, uh, do you really know a lot about laptop repair? I got to ask. Are you are you the sort of are guy? Are you kidding me? Okay. Oh, my God. Why would you no, ask? I just... I just like job owning. I see. You don't no. you you wouldn't charge for it. It would be an act of charity for you. True. Oh, okay. there I'm you trying go. to stay out of the way in case this is a segue. Oh, this it is. is a segue. I just it is. Of course, of course. With of this course. much time left on the clock and all that stuff, how could it not possibly be? I'm speaking. It's should it's probably going to be a segue. But for whom, you may ask. Well, I'm, I talked about charity. Charity. When it comes to charity, you think donors trust, or you should. It's the tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving without compromising your values. Are you worried that cancel culture might come for your charitable dollars? Well, big banks that sponsor charitable savings accounts, or donor-advised funds, as they're formally called, they have a history of slow-walking or altogether blocking donations to conservative charities. Charities that have found themselves in the crosshairs of the woke mob include Alliance Defending Freedom, National Review Institute, National Rifle Association Foundation, Liberty Council, Turning Point USA, and others. Clearly, not every donor-advised fund provider is safe for conservatives. Let Donors Trust help manage your charitable giving. Donors Trust was built with our listeners in mind. And who that? Well, that's people who believe in limited government and constitutional rights that are worth fighting for. If you already have a donor-advised fund, consider opening a rollover account. It can be done in three simple steps just by calling our friends at Donors Trust. The Donors Trust team will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. Partner with a fund that matches your values. To learn more, download the prospectus at www.donorstrust.org slash ricochet. That's donorstrust.org slash ricochet. To align your giving with your values, visit donorstrust.org slash ricochet. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Here is Rob Long to tell you about some things coming up that you're going to want to do. Um, we're going to get to the Peter Robinson Gorbachev tales in just a second. Sort of thing that you can hear passed around at a ricochet meetup, right? As we get back to exactly. meeting in person. There are benefits to being a ricochet member. For one thing, the Texas Tribune Festival program, you can now get it it's live. Texas's breakout politics and policy ideas events happening September 22 to 24 in Austin. Lineup of big names you know, others you should, including one of our own from the Ricochet Network. You can see David Drucker interview Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, 
maybe um, a dark horse for the 24 nom. And Arkansas Governor Asa Hodgson live on the TribFest stage, September 23rd. Make sure you say hi. For the full program, you can grab tickets, tribfest.org, tribfest, all one word, dot org. If you'd like to attend, just join Ricochet and use the special discount code for a one-time 15% off uh, the general admission ticket. Go to tribfest.org, enter code RICOCHET15. So that's how you remember it, Ricochet, plus the 15% you get. Ricochet15 in the promo code box located at the registration widget. Click apply, and we hope to see you there. Also, Ricochet meetup schedule is hard to keep up with. We're adding new stuff all the time. Members are getting together all over, and we want you to join Ricochet so you can come to one of these, and we can meet you. So keep an eye out for coming on the coming events page. Go to ricochet.com slash events. A couple upcoming meetups uh, on the official schedule happening in Williamsburg, Virginia. And Huntsville, Alabama in October. Huntsville, Alabama is a beautiful town. So is Williamsburg, but you already knew that. Uh, and we've got one uh, set. I don't know if it's set, but there's one kind of set question mark, but it's going to happen in New Orleans next year during the French Quarter Fest. I will be at that one for sure. If you're not in the Southeast and these dates don't work for you, here's the solution. You join Ricochet. Give us a place and time. The Ricochet members will come to you. That's what we do. So. For details on both Texas Trib Festival and Ricochet Meetups, go to ricochet.com slash events. Find a module in the sidebar of the site. Join Ricochet. We'll see you soon. And it says something about the quality of the people at Ricochet. That when somebody announces a meetup, uh, I look at it and say my schedule, how long would it take to get... I went to the one in New York. Yeah. You know, for all we know, the people who just joined Ricochet, uh, you know, paid their money and had a, had a meetup, this could be a devil in a white city kind of thing. <laughs> yeah i mean what better what better way for a serial murderer starting out you're not in, selling very well you're, james you're, i have to no, tell you the point that i'm making rob is that that hasn't happened yet which tells well, that you, hasn't happened no, i see which tells which tells you an awful Ser- lot uh, ricochet serial killer free since its founding mm-hmm. this <laughs> many, enough, that's, uh, as that's as far as we good. know this many as days, far this many know, days right. without a site connected to evisceration. Exactly, uh, Peter. You, we were talking before at the start, of course, about Gorbachev, and of all the guys we want to hear about, uh, you're the one. You posted on Ricochet a couple of anecdotes of your meetings with Gorbachev. But uh, it, it, tell us about the fact that you have a baseball signed by I Gorbachev. Do. I do. Let's that see. American, it, American, can... American object that is potency there, signed by the leader of the Soviet. So go on with that tale. Former leader. Well, this is in the early 2000s. Somewhere, I'm sure I have, I made notes on all this. I could look it up and find the date, but I didn't do that in the last couple of days. Early 2000s. And uh, the collapse of communism was so total that the former leader of the communist world embraced capitalism and came to this country and did some speaking events represented by a big speakers bureau and i'm sure he was extremely handsomely paid michael reagan the president's son and a pal of mine interviewed gorbachev on stage and michael asked me to suggest questions so i did and the result of all this was that i spent a couple of evenings backstage chatting with mikhail gorbachev before he went on with michael um I brought back the baseball comes about just because I, I I took a buddy of mine to meet Gorbachev and my buddy is baseball crazy and he pulled out of his jacket pocket two baseballs one for him and one for me it's not clear to me that Gorbachev understood exactly what a baseball <laughs> was and it's also it was quite clear that he didn't understand mm-hmm. 
why anybody was asking him to sign a spherical object. He held it a little awkward, but he was game. He signed it. He was happy to do so. What was the most striking piece of this was that Mike got to a question that I suggested because I really wanted to hear the answer. This was up in Sacramento, and Mike set it up just the way we discussed it with John O'Sullivan at the top of the show. In 1956, the Soviets rolled in the tanks to Budapest to put down a rebellion. In 1968, they rolled the tanks into Prague. And in 1989, Gorbachev kept the Red Army in its barracks. Why? And Gorbachev replied through his translator, because, Michael, I shared basic Christian values, Christian values with your father. And that's a and surprise. The, was the, that that, it, that sets you back right there. It did. And the, and the audience murmured. It was a surprise uh -huh. to the audience. And he chuckled and he said, no, 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 don't mistake me. I'm a good communist. But then he told the story about growing up in his town in the Urals, where his grandfather was the big communist in town. And when the communists would come over to their house for a meeting, his grandfather would put up a picture of Lenin and a picture of Stalin. And as soon as the communists left, his grandmother, who always remained a believer, would take those pictures down and she would put up an icon of St. Andrew, who's the patron saint of Russia, and an icon of St. Michael, after whom Mikhail Gorbachev was named. And Gorbachev went on to say that later, when he was married and he achieved some standing. Um, he was living in Moscow. His grandmother came to live with him in Raisa, and she would go to church every day, and she would always say, I'm off to pray for you atheists. And he said, I, I, so you see, I have a respect for, I have always respected basic Christian values. Hmm. And I thought to myself, what this proves is that the failure of communism was total. Lenin decreed the importance of a new communist man. That is to say, among other features, the communist man would have no conscience but what the party decreed. And in Mikhail Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union, the head of the Communist Party, what that system produced was not a new communist man, but an old-fashioned Russian. He believed in conscience. He believed in, in, in individual conscience, over and above any dictates of the party. And he was a man who had been formed by the Judeo-Christian culture. Russia isn't Christian in exactly the same way. The West is Christian. History's do Nevertheless, the God of Abraham is still God in Russia, and the fundamentals of Christian values informed a thousand years of Russian history before the communists took over, and they formed Mikhail Gorbachev. So that, that's my Gorbachev story. Whether or not the Russian character, the Russian soul is individualistic, though, or collective is a different question. We don't see, I mean, one of the conceits that we had in the 80s was that if given the chance, they would break free and they would, democracy, whiskey, sexy, it was later say they would form a simulacrum of a, the democracies that we have because they too valued the same things. It's, it's an idea that you can see at the end of the Rocky movie. Right. Number three, or Ivan Drago, the instrument of the state is being defeated. And the Gorbachev character in the movie stands up and applauds and everybody else does, too, because he's plucky. He's an individual. He's brave. 
as opposed to a culture that would celebrate the investiture of the entire culture into one man who is a cog of the machine. When we see the pathologies that Russia has fallen into in the last 10 years, it seems less mm-hmm. likely that sort of individualism is, 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 is flowering and flaming in the breast. But when you mention that the communists start with a new communist man, they do. In architecture, in, in, in Soviet architecture, they broke completely with the past, utterly, and came up with new styles, uh, constructivism, that were supposed to demonstrate the new utopian world that they were building. And after a while, you can see it start to modify and change. You can see it enter a Baroque period almost. Then you can see the Stalin influences of classicism come back. You can see the restoration of beauty in the subways until finally you end up with these ghastly fascistic but still classically oriented things as if there was it was in they were incapable of not being drawn back to these historical models because everything that communism supplanted was better than what it provided and the whole idea of this godless utopia just falls like 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 hail on the tin rain and the and the tin roof of people's souls so yes i mean it's, I, I believe what you said about Gorbachev. I, I, I think that that's possibly true. Whether or not that means that the, the, the Russian soul and the Russian experience, that he was the exemplar of it or a sort of offshoot of it that was needed at the time, I can't say. I mean, I interviewed Vladimir Posner, who was one of the most charming people I've ever met and, you know, just a complete opportunist uh, and could convince bad everybody. Guy. Bad, bad guy. guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he could make a great case for everything. And you could have a great drink and he'd smoke Western cigarettes and wore a leather jacket. He was cool. <laughs> But he was a fraud. So you always got to watch out for that. Part, Rob, you were going to say something before I rambled on. I don't know. Am I, am I mute? I'm sorry. Uh, no. no, no. That's uh, that was uh, we, we, we've said it already. Well, then we've said everything that needs to be said. I can't possibly think what anybody would want to add to any of this. I'm just kidding. Go to the comments at Ricochet <laughs> and you will find people who are disputing and arguing and agreeing and having fun. In other words, doing the Ricochet thing. Podcast was brought to you by Bolin Branch and by Donors Trust. Support them for supporting us, if you don't mind. And of course, have we mentioned that you should join Ricochet? You should join Ricochet. Have we mentioned that you should uh, maybe give us one of those five-star reviews on Apple? You know, you, you could. You could, you know, wouldn't kill you. It would help more people find the podcast. More listeners means more Ricochet members. More Ricochet members means we are there into the future where we want to be. And we'll see you there in the future. And we'll see you all in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week, boys. Next, next week, week, fellas. Ricochet. Join the conversation.